Welcome to Church Sound Podcast. I'm your host, Samantha. And I'm James. We're audio engineers, authors, and educators. With a special focus on houses of worship. On this episode, troubleshooting tips and preventions. We want to give a special shout out to this show's sponsors. First up, we have Prime Acoustic, who help the message be heard and remove excessive reverb in your house of worship. We also want to thank Digico. Their new Quantum 338 and other house of worship solutions are available at digico.biz. And finally, ElectroVoice, who have been a leader in church sound since the beginning, and today offers the industry's largest portfolio of loudspeaker system solutions for houses of worship of all sizes. Elevate the audio experience with ElectroVoice. Ah, another week, James. Another week, another podcast. Yeah. How's um, all the the filming and stuff going with your new course? Uh, It's going pretty good. Um, Although I got a note from my video editor this morning that there was an error with some of the audio. Ah, nuts. Uh, So I have to figure out what what I need to reshoot or if it's salvageable with, uh, you know, noise reduction plugins. I haven't had a chance to listen to it. I just got the email. So I'm like. All you're right, th- you're well, thinking that, about that. Huh? My timeline, but <laughs> that's how it goes. You got to get it right because it's forever. Yeah, uh, mm, that's the fun. Is that you can? I mean, that's kind of the difference between teaching live or um, mixing live and doing a video or doing studio recording. Is that yeah, you have unlimited takes, but then you have like you're trying to reach perfection, right? And it's you're trying your darndest, uh, and at some point you just have to say. Well, this is good. This is going to have to be good enough. Yeah, you have unlimited takes, but you also have unlimited playback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How many hours a day, like, are you typically spending? Like, when you're in the throes of making a new course and you're filming it, how, how many days are you? Or excuse me, how many hours are you doing that? Uh, I can usually film for about a full hour of content at a time. So between getting set up and I try to keep, you know, leave stuff set up as much as possible. So I'm not running gear all the time. Oh my God. That's the worst part. (laughs) But the brain space of like, how do I say all this quickly and clearly? Mm -hmm. I've got about an hour uh, Mm -hmm. of what I can teach. So uh, thankfully my, you know, memory cards can hold much more than that. Uh, But after I get past an hour, hour and a half, I become less effective in Mm -hmm. teaching. Um, so then, you know, so I start to ramble and then I've got to edit more and it's, it's the law of diminishing returns kicks in, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I wish I could crank it all out in like one eight hour day where I just teach the entire time, mm-hmm. but I'm usually like, you know, making changes to the content as I'm saying it. Yeah. So I'm not super highly scripted, like reading from a teleprompter. No. That would be cool if I could be yeah. that prepared. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking like, what do I need to say keep it as short as possible, Mm -hmm. but also include those details that are really critical. Yeah. Yeah. When we were filming the church sound university, like online course, like right uh, after the, the, like quarantine was happening, uh, it was, we like, we did, we had one day, I think it was maybe a day and a half where we got in this little studio setup and we cranked, we cranked it out. And by the end of it, I was like, uh, ready to be done. I was not as, as sharp as I like to be, but it's like all of us had to fly in from like, you know, all over the country to do it. It's it's now or never. Uh, and doing it, that's what makes it harder is working with teams. If, if one of you's on camera and the other's not, that makes it 
doing remote stuff super easy. When there's there's two of you on camera or more, that the continuity is impossible, impossible to have uh, unless you're in the same room. Personally, it is extremely hard to yeah. do otherwise. But yeah, that's I feel for you. That's why I like teaching live is because, you know, yep, I could totally bomb this or say the wrong thing, but that's okay. I'm a human and it's live, so it's fine. And I have way more freedom to riff and be comfortable. And I don't have to worry about stumbling my words as long as I keep my breath steady. Like I'm I'm fine. Yeah. And there's something about being in the same room and breathing the same air with people. Yeah. And being really able is. to read body language, if they're connecting with it. You know, mm-hmm. like I could say the exact same thing to two different groups of people. And some people could be nodding and, and tracking with it. And they're like, they have all the background information in order to use what I'm saying. And, mm-hmm. you know, it it applies to something that they can discover. Yeah. Other times you can look and they're glazed over and I know I've lost them because mm. they're missing some key part of information Yeah, that I didn't know that they didn't know, but I can then ask and be like, do you guys know what I mean when I say, you know, mm-hmm. the proximity effect? And they're like, the what? Yeah. Is that like reverb? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there, there's really nothing like it. I know that people don't, they, that's why they don't like doing stuff live or in front of people is because they feel like they're, any, any mistake is magnified or, or what have you. But I feel that way about video stuff. It's like everything is permanent and magnified. And so it, it's just, it's tough. Anyways, uh, that's cool. I'm very excited to see your course and for us to shout about it a lot here on the podcast. Yeah, that'll be fun. And it'll be good for it to be done too. <laughs> Honestly, yes. Like I'm, I'm about to start doing something similar not for the house of worship market, but like um, doing some networking training videos. Uh, I mean, the gasps of surprise from the audience right now. Uh, so networking training and some other stuff uh, for Alan and Heath. And it's just some of our marketing team is like in Montreal and like I'm over here in Kansas City. And so we're trying to like figure out, okay, do we want to be in person to do this? Like, what does this look like? I got to do all the scripts. The scripting is what takes, honestly, the longest for me, uh, even oh, as yeah. a writer. Like it's... I know what's going to happen. It's just about like, I think, I think you said this, it's like communicating it in the most effective way possible. Um, When you're writing, when you're writing an article, you, there's a lot more playroom. I think like you can, you can have visual aids and things like that, which you can do on video as well. There's just that extra dimension. That's like, I hope this comes across. Okay. Um, In some ways it's more efficient communication on video. Right. In other ways it's, in every way, it's way more work. So, yeah, absolutely. All right, word of the day. So, uh, our what we're talking about today is really user errors, troubleshooting, prevention. So, I wanted to make sure we kick this off. Word of the day: What is troubleshooting? So, for me, when I think up or talk about troubleshooting, I'm really thinking of a a list of ways to eliminate variables. That's what troubleshooting is for me. A, um, I guess like a, a very, yeah, it, it's not like a step one, step two, step three necessarily. It's like, I generally need to check these three things every time if this sort of problem is going to happen. So troubleshooting for me is again, really the elimination of variables. Something's going wrong. And in order to do troubleshooting, I have to eliminate variables. How would you kind of talk about troubleshooting, James? 
Yeah, that's a good a good point. I think troubleshooting is trying to find, I mean, like, when there's a problem or trouble, how do we pinpoint exactly where it is instead of being like, well, this sound system doesn't work or this microphone is not working through this sound system. Mm-hmm. Let's tear out the entire sound system and replace the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. No, you're not going to do that. We're, <laughs> we're not trouble bulldozing. We're, we're troubleshooting and we're trying to find one part that's not working because there are, I don't know how many dozens of connections of uh, settings that need to be correct uh, yeah. in a sound system, large or small, like even a small sound system, there's at least a dozen things that could be wrong. How do you find that and pinpoint it so that it's usually often it's one switch or one button and it's a, a, a smack your forehead kind of moment when mm-hmm. you find it like, Oh, why didn't I do that? But, but each one of those things has to be just right. When it's not, or if there's a noise or something, how do you isolate a problem so that you can fix it instead of, you know, you know, bulldozing the problem and being like, well, you know, this wireless microphone doesn't work. Let's try a different wireless setup altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's a little bit uh, coarse. So, you know, trying to be efficient and effective in finding problems and eliminating them. Yeah, totally great. And I, this is something that I see all the time, like out in the wild, just constantly. It might just, it's, I think it's just the nature of being in a semi-technical field is, or even in an extremely technical field, this is just sort of the part of it. And much to our chagrin and, and we're working on these efforts, the community that listens to this podcast are typically uh, have a whole other career in addition to working at a house of worship and working with their tech. And most of the time, I don't think it's very technically related or it could be technical like I've, I've met so many electricians who do tech, uh, at churches, but like, yes, they're both quote technical, but like not in the same way at all. So I come across all of these occasions where troubleshooting is, it's just, that's the first thing that happens. I also work very closely with our tech support team and I, uh, have these very regularly occurring meetings where we talk about, okay, well, what are we hearing the most about this set of products or what's coming across? Or are there any like, you know, uh, I don't know what to call it, like a, a bomb on the horizon or something like that. Like something that we can see maybe coming down the chute <laughs> that we need to prepare for. And basically going through the, these, there's kind of the same steps of a very uh, variable elimination that we go through all the time, whether it's our tech support team or I'm working with like people I've worked with very, very, very high end clients who have seemingly no idea how to troubleshoot or have a, have a really hard time eliminating variables. So like it's, it is okay. We're all human beings. James and I are just very good at this because like, that's, that's the whole thing. If you become really good at troubleshooting, by the way, your value, that's, that is your value. It's not being able to necessarily make the mix sound good. That's great. But you earn what you are paid or what you should be paid when things go wrong. Right. So, yeah, I mean, firefighters, you know, like yeah. <laughs> when everything is going right, their job is not all that uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, 
But, you know, when there is something critically wrong, they are critically important. It's kind of the same thing with audio people or just technical people in general. Mm. You know, the goal is to be ignored. We want things to be seamless and people not to notice the technology when it is not working. That creates what I like to call a sound tech solo, where people Mm, will turn around and look at the sound tech and be like, why aren't you fixing that right now? We all know it's not right. You know, like, why didn't you fix it already? Yeah. Uh, and I I hate sound tech solos. So <laughs> yeah. hopefully we'll help you avoid them in this episode. Yeah. All right. So let's kind of dive in a little bit more here. We've kind of set the stage. Something about troubleshooting. I, we'll have this full conversation today and it will be lovely. And we'll try to give you folks as much information as we can. But there is no learning like having something blow up in front of you. Uh, The trial by fire is very real and very important in troubleshooting. So we could have, you could listen to this podcast and feel like you've learned a lot. And then in two months, something goes horribly awry and, and two sentences from this podcast might stick out at you and think, Oh my gosh, I need to check this. And it won't be cemented until that thing blows up in your face period that it's troubleshooting is just a trial by fire sort of scenario. So I figured James, if you're cool with this, we'll just kind of go through some scenarios um, that we see a lot. I think that would be helpful for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, Let's start with, I I experienced this one actually over the weekend. Uh, My wedges are feeding back. Uh, That's uh, okay. So yes, my wedges are feeding back Uh, at this particular job. uh, I was at last weekend I guess, actually, no. You mind if I ask you, James? So since I I came up with the wedges bit, I'd like to know this is new for you. Suddenly there's a problem. My wedges are feeding back. What are you doing? Uh, I'm going to figure out if I can. If If I'm at the soundboard and the wedges are feeding back, I'm going to try to visually figure out what might be going wrong by looking in two different places, one far away from me and one close to me close by. If I can only see close by, I'm going to be looking for a meter Mm -hmm. either on the inputs or on the outputs that is higher than the rest. Mm -hmm. So that might be like my visual cue of, can I narrow this down to which microphone and which monitor wedge are having that interaction and causing that feedback? Mm -hmm. The one that's highest is probably going to be the one that's feeding back. Yeah. It's likely. So that's one of the visual cues I'm going to look for uh, on my meters. So lots of lights or red lights, that's where I'm going to go first. And then I can try to attack that situation either with a mute button or pulling a fader back mm-hmm. suddenly. Um, this is a point where yes, pulling a fader down is more, is less conspicuous, but just getting it off is fine. If you just want to mash that mute button, go for it. <laughs> um, yeah. so I'm going to try to do that selectively. It depends on if it's during a, I'm going to say show or performance, but during a service where there are people trying to pay attention to, you know, what's going on on stage. In that scenario, I'm going to be try. I'm going to try to work quickly. Well, you're always going to try to work quickly, right? But it's very urgent to work quickly, but also kind of try to preserve what might still be going on. So your temptation might be just mute everything, right? <laughs> mute all your input channels, and then nothing yeah. can feedback. And in a rehearsal situation or where there's not like people trying to pay attention or an event going on, that works fine. Uh, 
you know, it's kind of the, you know, bulldozer approach to it, but it will get it to stop. If I can be more selective with it, I will. The other thing I'm going to be looking for is on stage, if there's something obvious where someone is standing with their microphone down at, uh, beside their leg, <laughs> pointed straight into the monitor wedge, that's my cue. That's probably the one that's feeding back. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that people will do uh, mistakenly is they'll put their hand and cup it over the microphone mm-hmm. to try to stop yeah. it. It's like, they're like, well, it's getting into the microphone. So if I create a barrier between the microphone and the sound source, that should help. Uh, but that can be counterintuitive because your hand can create reflections or mess with the directional characteristics of the microphones, like collar and phase plug things around the heads, uh, the head basket that makes it less likely to reject sound from the back end anyway. So uh, you can change the polar pattern by holding the mic the wrong way. Mm. And that can make more feedback. So those are the things that I'm going to be looking for kind of far away on stage to try to identify where it is mm-hmm. in addition to the the checking the meters that are up close and try to to get that um, identified as where that's coming from. Mm. Yeah. If that can't happen within like a couple seconds, then I'm probably going to try to go to my masters of the monitor wedges and just pull all of those down real quick. Yeah. That's also kind of a, it's less elegant, but quick. And then yeah. I can start to maybe fade those back in if we're still trying to continue a service. Um, and, you know, I don't always know exactly what the source was in those three seconds. Yeah. But if I can, if I can stop the problem and then try to identify what it was in the aftermath, then I'll do that. But. Um, yeah, if I mean, I'm, if it's in a non-service, uh, scenario and I've got the time, then I will even bring the mics or the monitor wedges back up and see which one might start to ring a little bit. So I'm pushing those up gently to be like, okay, this one's starting to ring. What's going on with this? Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of my, my, oh shoot reaction when I hear feedback from wedges. Yeah, and feedback is like one of those things where it has to be an emergency. Like some something's wrong. This could damage equipment. This could damage people's hearing. Like you wanna sometimes you gotta bulldoze because you it needs to stop. So I get it. <laughs> uh, this last weekend, uh, my first step was I guess even taking a step backwards, and maybe I don't even know it's a wedge. Is there? It felt I was listening out front, and it was so insanely muddy uh like it was uh, it was it was just so not like it was just not correct i just knew it was not right i had mixed in that uh, venue before we were outside um and it was just like oh like there's something about uh, that you only get that from years of experience listening is like it wasn't like a really high screechy like clearly this is feedback it was that very uh, insidious low feedback that just kind of hangs out there and doesn't oh, yeah. explode, yeah. but just ruins things. <laughs> so um, I had to first decide, like, okay, immediately first thought, is this front of house or is this the wedges? I haven't mixed on wedges in, like, a, a while. <laughs> so, And this was, like, a um, a student, like, metal band. So it was they were very talented, but they all had wedges. So I was, like, a lot of variables were there t- uh, over the weekend that I don't normally work with anymore. 
uh, is it front of house or is it the wedges? I was like, there's no way it can be front of house because they're like speakers on sticks uh, in front of the stage. Like, okay, it can't be that. There's not a, you know, there's not a wall that's, this is slapping off of and coming back to them. So it's not that. It must be the wedges. Immediately then is what you said, James. I look at the meters and think, okay, whose meter is getting like absolutely wild? I'm, my eyes are like kind of darting between the stage and at my iPad or my console. Say, okay, who's, who's speaking right now? Whose meter should I be seeing? Whose is like way higher than it probably should be? Like the exact same thing that you said, James. I'm looking for that visual feedback of who's doing what. And then I had the really fun job. There was two feeds of wedges. Uh, and uh, But there was actually like five speakers. Like there was, so there was two mixes and five wedges. So that was fun. Um, and still trying to figure that out. Um, eventually, like I, it was a rehearsal before we started granted only like 10 minutes before. So we had to act fast, but it was like, okay, so I know it's the wedges. I found out it was uh, one of the guitar guitarists guitars that was feeding back. And I said, okay, uh, we had them like kind of slowly play a little bit, a few people at a time to see if we could, I wanted to recreate the problem. Like, okay, let's make it do it again, make it do it again until you can eliminate all the variables and say, yep, it was this person's guitar. This is what's happening. And then you say, okay, now we know who it is. Why is it happening? Uh, it ended up being, I think there was like uh, his guitar was, uh, his guitar amp was like very close to his. I think it was also like, um, getting caught in one of the uh, like drum speakers because they they were packed on the stage, so it was like a little bit of everything. So to eliminate this problem as like a quick and dirty, it's like all right, let's start adding some gates on things. I physically moved the guitarist guitar amp away um, to keep it. I mean, it was mic'd, it was fine, but I just needed to get it away from everything else, including their own guitar. And then it was like, okay, all the vocalists, y'all are getting uh, gates now because suddenly this is going to be a really big problem. So everybody got a gate, had to ride that threshold <laughs> all day. That was fun. Um, and trying to, I mean, it was the whole, I didn't set up, uh, in my defense, guys, <laughs> I didn't set up the gain structure on this. I came into it. It was like, I just got to like white glove this and come in and mix this these people's uh, student band. So it was good. But as soon as it was like done, we got through the scenario. I, we troubleshooted, troubleshot, troubleshot, we troubleshot, <laughs> um, troubleshot, got it under control enough to get through the gig. Uh, the next thing, if this were, if I were in a, if this were a service or it was, I was at a house of worship, uh, it would be, we immediately need to, do some gain structure changes because something's out of whack and we need to make sure everybody is dialed in correctly. I couldn't do that. I couldn't redo everybody's uh, wedges and uh, all of their gain, you know, 10 minutes before the show started. So that was an option for everybody listening. Uh, that is immediately what you need to do because it's a, it's a safe bet. If you're having feedback problems, it's a gain structure problem. You bring up a good point on, you know, is it trouble shooting, trouble shot, trouble shooted? Yeah. <laughs> and related to that, is it feedbacking or feeding back? 
Mm. These are the things that keep me up at night. I don't know why I can't figure out these this language, and it bothers me when I hear somebody say feedbacking. Yeah, but it's yeah, yeah, that's wrong. That feels wrong. Uh, I, <laughs> I think, think it's like, feeding back. And I, I'm going to go on the record on that. I agree. I will also stand. It's not yeah. feedbacking. It's feeding back. Yes. But, but of course, you're the editor at Church Sound Magazine. Yes. So you know you, that's how we you know <laughs> you know better than me. <laughs> no, I, I'm for that. It's also like cul-de-sac. I'm pretty sure the official, um, like the French, it's a French word. So I'm pretty sure the the uh, the multiples of it, uh, of cul-de-sac is coles de sac. Uh, <laughs> but we just say cul-de-sacs because like it ends in a consonant and we're we're fine with that. So, <laughs> okay. Anyways. Uh, all right. Um, uh, so we did a uh, wedges are feeding back. Another closely related one is the faders are up, but I'm not hearing anything. What first, James? Oh, this one's, I've got four steps for this one. So, oh, nice. uh, so the first thing that you need to verify is that everything is plugged in, right? At least as much as you can see. Uh, because inevitably somebody could be mean? like, oh, I'm plugged into the right DI when, you know, the guitar is plugged into the bass DI and they don't realize it. Yeah, so, I was going to say, like, could you say a little bit more about being plugged in right? I know what you mean, but yeah. what might other people take from that? So on stage, you can just verify and, you know, we'll we'll talk about prevention as well in this episode, but knowing where stuff should be plugged in and having it labeled will save you a lot of bottles of ibuprofen for the headaches that it will cause if you don't have stuff labeled. Yeah. And you need an input list. So this is a list of what input should be plugged into what stage box, which gets plugged into what input on the console so that you can know and trace these things. If you have to guess and reverse engineer all of it while something's not working, you've just added about five minutes to a very time sensitive thing. So you don't want to do that. Make sure that you've got a list of where stuff should be plugged in. So you can say, okay, I'm following this cable from the guitar to the DI. This DI is plugged into this mic cable that's plugged into this floor pocket, you know, number three. I'm going to go over to my uh, either digital snake or analog snake head that's going to go back to front of house. And I'm going to find that same floor pockets number three and make sure that it's plugged in in the right part of the console on what channel it should be in, right? Those are the things to verify, mm. hey, is this in the right place? It's really easy to get just one uh, patch point away on any of those. You know, it's like, oh, you know, number four from the floor pocket is plugged in into that mic input on the console instead of number three. So let me switch that to where it should be and just revert to what's written down. Not, don't, I mean, you can make what, you have change on the document or, you know, mm. change to what the document says, but make sure that it's documented written, written down. And if you change anything, write that down. Google docs are great for that because they can be updated. Um, and you can see history as well, which is handy. So I'm going to make sure that everything's plugged in properly. And then there are four things I'm going to check uh, that are not visible, right? So like the mute button isn't pressed and the faders mm -hmm. up, right? So, the first one is phantom power if it needs it. Um, I actually got a text from my sister who's a like music teacher at an elementary school. And she's like, hey, I've got these mics, but they don't work. What's wrong? 
and I had never seen those particular mics, but I zoomed in on the, the, the picture that she sent me and I'm like typing in model numbers. I'm like, oh, those are condenser microphones. Mm. We have to turn on phantom power for those to work. Uh, and then on her little iPad controlled mixer, I figured out how to get to the page that turns on phantom power for her. So I'm, you know, looking at PDFs and like sending <laughs> yeah. up screenshots of this is what you should press to to get to the button that you need. Mm. So Phantom Power will make condenser mics work and it will make active direct boxes work. So if your signal level is really low and you're like gaining it up and it's just kind of noisy and weak, that's probably a sign that you need Phantom Power. Gain it down and mute it before you turn on Phantom Power and mm. then it should work. Uh, the next thing to check is to make sure that the channel is assigned to the main output. This is one button that trips a lot of people up, and mm -hmm. it usually gets uh, turned off by accident. But just because the fader's up doesn't mean that it's automatically going to be sent to the main output. So look for main or stereo or LR, something to assign it to that main output. And then the other two are DCAs that it could be assigned to, or a VCA. A VCA is a remote control for the faders that are assigned to it. So if you have a DCA that's down all the way at negative infinity, no matter how much signal you push up on that fader, it's multiplying that by negative infinity and you won't get any level out of that. So make sure that it's not assigned to a DCA that's down or muted or part of a mute group. Mm -hmm. Some consoles... Uh, will let you override the mute group. Like if it's a part of a mute group and you want to unmute it right there at the channel level and you hit mute, it will unmute for you. Other times it will be flashing a certain speed in the mute group and you hit the mute and it's going to just stay on or flash at a different speed. Uh, so mute groups can behave in different ways. So you're going to be like, I'm trying to unmute it, but it's not doing it. <laughs> uh the mute group could be the culprit there. So those are the four things that I check on the board to make sure uh, that the signal is going to get to the main output. Uh, and before all of that, I've played music from like a an iPod or uh, some sort of computer playback to make sure that the speakers and amplifiers yeah. are all on yeah, and the master faders up and all that. So those are those tips are, you know, after making sure all the stuff's plugged in and making sure that the amplifiers are actually on instead of just like, oh, well, why the board's on, so why isn't the speaker system on? Well, those can be on different switches. Yeah, and that makes a good point of of why troubleshooting can be so difficult is because this it totally depends on the scenario. So we talk about, okay, my faders are up and I'm not hearing anything. When I initially think of that, I assume you already had audio running through the speakers you had got sound coming from it you heard it a few you know within the last couple of minutes and now suddenly you're not getting or during rehearsal you had it but then on downbeat it's nothing but maybe you just walked in and said okay my faders are up but i'm not hearing anything that's a different set of steps than if you just heard you've already heard something out of the sound system you just made that point uh so if I'm just walking in and I have not heard any sound come from these speakers today, it's I'm not going to check and make sure my, you know, my stuff's unmuted. I'm going to make sure are my amps on? Are there any unintentional air gaps uh, that's a, that, you know, nobody checked? Making sure an air gaps being that somebody didn't plug something in. Uh, making sure the amps are on, making sure I can get something, something out of it. If I 
have heard audio before, I'm basically following your exact steps, James. The first one is like, I, you know, it always ends up being, if, you know, someone's muted on a second layer that we I missed or something like that. And it's like, oh, here we go. You throw the fader down, unmute it and bring the fader back up as quickly as you can. And then you kind of just go through the the normal set of things. It's normally the answers are quite simple, right? That's the whole thing with troubleshooting. It's normally not something super convoluted. It's just in the process of eliminating variables, it, see, it starts to like add up. It feels like it's going to be really complicated. My favorite problems are the ones that are like dope, like forehead slapping, should have had a V8 style. I love those <laughs> because if they're much more complicated than that, it really becomes a whole, a, a, an entire situation as opposed to a blip. The really easy ones are just blips. They happen. They're natural. It's okay. But when they start getting more than, okay, for sure, everything is unmuted. Everything is up. Everything's on. I'm connected. Okay. And I'm still not hearing anything. The amps are on. Suddenly the situation is different. So uh, I, I agree with you entirely, James. Uh, what's one of the topics that uh, you might you would want to kind of bring up here um, for different kinds of situations for troubleshooting? I know you're, you've been filming. <laughs> Uh, Just give a little tease for the for the course. Yeah, I think the the biggest thing that helps you eliminate variables quickly is understanding the totality of the signal flow. So mm. all the way from the sound source to the destination of our speakers, how does the signal get there? And if you understand that entire chain, you can quickly either like swap two things and see where the problem stays and then eliminate a big chunk of stuff that could be wrong. So let's say, um, let's say you've got a stereo keyboard and you've got one side that's getting to the console, but the other side is not right. So, mm -hmm. uh, you might be tempted to start at the, the keyboard itself and be like, swap the quarter inch cables coming out of the keyboard and look that way to be like, okay, well, you know, is it going to stay on one channel or is it going to go on a different one? Uh, I actually like to skip a little bit toward the middle of the chain to see if I can eliminate an entire chunk, right? So mm -hmm. maybe I'm going to switch to where the signal comes out of the direct box and goes into the XLR cable that then goes, goes to the console. If I swap those, I can know, is it upstream of this? Is it a problem with maybe the routing on the computer or quarter-inch cables gone bad or something? Or is the problem still on the downstream side or toward the console? And then I, I don't have, that eliminates like four or five things that I don't have to check mm -hmm. if I can like kind of go to the midpoint and say, it's on one of these sides, I need to figure it out. Um, you know, that's how I try to eliminate more variables than less. But you're going to have a hard time doing that if you're not systematic about it and if you don't understand the entire system. Um, one thing that trips people up when they start troubleshooting is they try something and it doesn't fix the problem, but then they don't put it back. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yeah, that stings when you, like, you know, that's more than the head smack. That's like a, you know, walk of shame kind of thing, mm -hmm. like... You're like, wow, I created more problems than, you know, cropped up for me. Yeah. So let's That's say that again, just, just for everybody. Can you repeat that? 
Yeah, if you swap something or try something when you're troubleshooting and it doesn't fix the problem, put it back to where it was. Because it's it's likely that it's only one of these variables. It's not likely that it's two. And so if you're not sure that like, oh, I know that this needs to be set at this level and it wasn't. So let's say you've got a vocal microphone and it's not working and you find that the gain or the preamp was turned down all the way. So you wouldn't have gotten any signal and you turn up the preamp. That might be another spot where it's not working, but it's still not working. If you know, like, okay, all the rest of my vocal mics have 30 dB of gain on their preamp. Mm. This one should probably match that to work, right? Uh, however, if you are saying to yourself, hey, my vocal mic is really weak and I'm not getting a lot of signal out of it. Maybe I don't have the preamp turned up enough. And you turn up the preamp to like 60 dB of gain, mm -hmm. which is a lot. Like all the way up. <laughs> yeah, all the way up. You're, you're you're maxing it out. And then you're like, huh, that doesn't work. It's still really, you know, quiet and noisy. Hmm. But you don't put it back down. And then later you find out, oh, I didn't have phantom power on. Or, oh, it was actually plugged into the wrong channel. So I was boosting up, you know, this, mm -hmm. this other microphone that's off in the closet somewhere. And so there was going to be no signal coming into it except something really weak. Then you plug in the right one, and mm. suddenly you have opened up the gates of every bit of acoustic energy that can go through this channel is now going to scream at everybody. It's going to go through everybody's in-ears. It's going to go through every monitor wedge. It's going to be super loud in the hall. Everything is going to be super loud because you didn't turn that mic pre back down to where it should be when you were testing stuff out. Mm. Mm. So that's the... That's the sample scenario of what I mean when you have to put stuff back if you try it and it doesn't work. Because you don't want to, we want to try to eliminate variables, not create more of them. Yeah, I I'm, I think that is such an important point. I'm definitely going to put it like at the top of the notes section of the episode is the our process of troubleshooting is eliminating variables and thus you cannot be more uh, in opposition of that when you create more variables. Always undo what you've done if it doesn't solve the problem at hand. Period. Always. Make note of it if you want to change it later. Like, okay, maybe I did like that and I'll do it again after. When you're troubleshooting, there cannot be anything else on your mind other than fixing that, finding the variable and fixing it. That's it. Okay, so before we get into prevention a little bit, I wanted to make one more note of one that I see a lot is just like my computer's not connecting uh, to the console or my iPad's not connecting to it. I don't know how to fix this. Uh, it's, you know, we, we bought this router, this, this wireless router thing from, I don't know, Walmart or Amazon or something. We plugged it in and I can't get it to work or find the console and it won't connect. The issue is, I assure you, it's always, and there's not many things with troubleshooting that I can say with certainty. <laughs> uh, the problem is, granted everything plugged in, is that the console and uh, your device you're trying to connect your computer are not on the same, what's called a subnet. They're not on the same tiny network. You know, that's what the word subnet is, right? It's like a subsection of a network. They can't see each other because they're literally, their addresses are not the same. It's like being in two different zip codes. 
uh, I can't see you if you're in a different zip code. So we need to be in the same zip code if we're going to make this, if I'm going to be able to send you a letter or be able to talk to you or communicate with you. Uh, wireless routers are almost always um, handing out addresses. They say, okay, if you're in this, in this zip code, you get the following address. Congratulations. And uh, if your um, console is on a static IP as, out of the box, as in it's been given one from the factory, this is almost always the case, that way you know exactly where that address is. So you can go and access it and poke into it. But things like your iPad or your computer, when they connect to a wireless router, like a, a Wi-Fi connection, they're almost always by default looking for somebody to give them an address. They're like, okay, like I know I'm supposed to be in the zip code, but like maybe I'm not. Can somebody please tell me where I need to be sitting right now? And they may hand out a completely different address in a completely different zip code than your console is in. So they're not able to see one another. So the first thing you do is, hey, my iPad's not finding my console, is to go see what your console is sitting at. There's, It's always going to, you'll be able to find out and it varies by manufacturer, what their address is and, and how big their subnet is. You can go look at that. And then go put your iPad or what have you, change its address to be in the same neighborhood, quote, the same zip code as the console. Then you'll be able to connect perfectly fine. Uh, it's just always a matter of, are we in the same zip code? Uh, how, how, are we, how are we able to see one another? So if you're not able to connect, I promise that's the issue. People, I can don't I ask people... a follow up question on that? You can, yes. So, you know, I've you know, in doing this a you know a dozen times or so, sometimes so the there's three basic numbers or sets mm -hmm. of numbers that you have to worry about on what you see on your console, right? So there's mm -hmm. the IP address, there's the subnet, and there's something else because I'm a noob, right? It's so usually like a router or gateway address, right? So when you say in the same neighborhood, mm -hmm. does that mean that it needs to be like that very first number of the IP address or the very two first sets of numbers mm -hmm. need to be the same? So like 192.168.whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. Do those need to be the same or does it need to be like the gateway of like the 255.255.255.0 or whatever? Sure. So, uh, okay, the the router or gateway address, they're labeled differently, but they mean the same thing. That address is to help you access typically uh, other, uh, let's say, let's stick with this neighborhood analogy, uh, to help you access other neighborhoods, other zip codes. Uh, if we're talking about networks, it's usually the address that helps us access the internet. That's the address we're going to use to leave our neighborhood, our zip code, and we're going to go to another zip code. We're going to go on the internet and look for stuff. So really, it's like, for the most part, it's a completely moot address. It doesn't matter at all. Um, what matters for you, I leave it blank most of the time. Um, uh, the subnet mask and the IP address are the two big ones. That's what you need to focus on. The first one you need to look at is a subnet mask. This is what is going to define how big your zip code is. Uh, so I think by default, most, most manufacturers in our world make the subnet mask three sets of 255 and then ending in a zero. So it'll be 255.255.255.0. Uh, that means uh, every set of 255 that you see has to match the, the numbers in the IP address. So... If I have a subnet mask of three sets of 255, that means the first three sets of my IP address need to match whatever I'm connecting to 
in order for them to see one another. So uh, let's all say we've got that three sets of 255, 255.255.255.0. And my IP address of my console is, let's say, 192.168.1.something. I have to have on my iPad, those first three sets of numbers have to match in order for me to be able to see it. Um, so the subnet mask is kind of like saying, how big is my zip code? Like this is defining how, who's going to be able to see what, uh, and then the actual address itself is really, it's really just completely made up. Uh, the subnet mask is defining how big we are. And then we have to match a certain set of those numbers for all of the other devices to see one another. So, uh, if you had two sets of 255, 255.255.0.0, I only need to match the first two sets of numbers and my IP address. So then I only need to match 192.168.something.something. Um, and so the less ne- the less 255s you have in your subnet mask, the larger your zip code is. Um, and it's very large. Like going from three sets of 25 to, to two sets of 255 uh, in your subnet mask goes from like uh, 200 and something devices or addresses that you're able to see in your zip code to like tens of thousands of addresses like you're able to see inside of your little subnet. So that's why it's almost always default three sets of 255, which means the first three sets of my IP address have to match on every device that I want to be able to see one another. Does that make sense? That is the clearest explanation I've ever heard on that. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh man, the the articles that I've tried to find, I'm like, yeah. you know what, you know, when I'm in that rehearsal moment, when I'm like, I could really use the iPad right now, yeah. and I'm trying to read through these articles, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to make all the numbers match except for the last one, mm-hmm. and that's kind of worked. But that totally. now I understand way better. Yeah. So. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. Cheers on that one. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, yeah. It's just one of those things that for some reason it's insanely abstract and I have just, I, I have found a way to kind of explain it to people and I think gets it because every time you look it up, it's even the ones that are kind of pointed towards us, like people, it just seems like the industry is kind of bad at explaining what it is. So I've been trying to work on (laughs) explaining it in a way that makes sense for people. So and doing it just uh, through uh, through us just talking, like that's a special level. Because a lot of people will use um, like visual visual stuff to like, oh, yeah, right. if you do this and do that. Anyways, I'm so glad that that's stuck. And I hope that sticks for everybody who's listening. So, okay. Uh, well, one more tip on IP yeah. addresses. Yeah. Is that each device needs to have a different IP address on the last number. Mm-hmm. Yes. I did not realize that. I thought it, like for a long time I was frustrated about connecting devices i'm like i made all the numbers match yeah but it's kind of like trying to like move two families into the same house in the same street it's like it's not going to work you're not going to be able to send a letter from somewhere to somewhere if it's at the same spot like we have to have a different address we have to have a uh, an apartment number or something it's got to be different for them to talk to each other yeah so let me let's stick with that and let me just take it a little bit further with you okay um Having two devices on the same subnet, the same little network, um, having two devices have the same address is, just like you were saying, is exactly like having two literal houses on the same street with the exact same address. And you're the postman who's like sitting there holding a letter and you're like, I have literally no idea which of these two houses is supposed to get this letter. 
uh, this packet of information because they both say the same house address. Like, I, I don't know who to give it to. And so it ends up, it, it, it looks like none of the connections are successful or your connection will be really good for like a few seconds or a few minutes and then it switches back over to the other one. So your connections are really unstable. And so, yes, if you make every device the same address, your network will just implode on itself. Like it, it literally will not know who to give what, what letter. It doesn't make any sense. So uh, good rule of thumb for the most part in our world of technology, if you match the first three numbers of the IP address of what you're trying to connect to, and then pick a number between two and like 250 uh, for that other device, then you're good. So helpful. Thank uh, you so much. My pleasure. This is my life now. Uh, okay. All right. So uh, we're kind of getting close to time here, but I want to talk just for a few minutes about prevention. So we've hit a lot in some ways, but not explicitly in this episode about prevention. Uh one of my favorite things, and I think that's most important and is the easiest for us all to do, is that documentation. And you mentioned that earlier, James, was making sure that we had all the patching and the channels, uh, everything labeled correctly. And hopefully, like everybody knows where to go if they need to find it out. I've worked at several churches where they would have it, the patch sheet uh, taped to the countertop, sort of off to the side. So it wasn't getting like, you know, spilled on or, uh, ripped up or anything, but nearby so they could go and find it. And if they were having trouble, especially with how wild patching and stuff can get these days in the digital realm, they can go look at that and say, oh yeah, this is supposed to be that. Let me check that. And if it's not that, uh, then the, we know what the problem is. So for me, documenting number one prevention tactic. I think the other prevention tactic is just testing stuff before people arrive. Uh, and that's what we call a line check. So it's not a sound check in that we're trying to make sure that, you know, things sound good. We're trying to do a line check to make sure that our signal is getting from on stage where it needs to be to our console. Mm. And having an iPad for this means that you don't have to have a second person for it. So back before we had uh, iPads where we could see the signal level on stage on what's going on on our console, we would have one person on the uh, on the stage with something very reliable as an input unit, like uh, an SM57 or mm -hmm. SM58, some sort of dynamic microphone that when we plug it into that mic line, we know that the output of that mic is going to work. And so you go through each one of your channels and you plug into the kick drum microphone and you scratch on the capsule or the, the mm -hmm. windscreen of that microphone. And then somebody at front of house you know, pulls it up and listens to it. And here's the scratching. Okay. Yes. I verified this is the right channel plugged into the right spot and it's not noisy. It doesn't necessarily have to sound fantastic. We're not, we're not worrying about that right now. We're just making sure that the signal is present and clean. And then we can eliminate a lot of problems before our talent shows up before people are depending on us to use the stuff. We just want to make sure that it works with an iPad. You can just check that and like look and see if the right meter is jumping up and down when mm -hmm. you're scratching on the input. Yeah. Um, so that's super helpful. And then also included in this process is muting and unmuting the channel at the right time. So mm -hmm. without an iPad, you holler out and say, you know, mute the snare drum. And then they say muted. I mean, a snare drum's on a 57 in the first place. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's not the best example. Or mute overhead left, muting overhead left, scratch on it. 
make sure that, that it's working, pull it up, mute it again before you unplug it and do it again. You can do that with direct boxes. So you can make sure that your base DI and your acoustic DI, at least at the point from the mic cable on, you know that it's plugged into the right spot and it's a clean signal getting there. Hmm. I'll also say another note for prevention is, and I think you also said this earlier, James, was uh, having a, a complete understanding of your signal flow. Particularly, though, focus on the console since that's where a hefty amount of variables can hide. I don't like using mute groups for this reason uh, because I can just I can forget about them and then get way caught up in looking for something else. I just and I don't like their the binaryness of a mute. It's it's on or it's off, and I don't like that. Um, is looking for those kinds of things and understanding if I am going to use mute groups that them things is labeled. Uh, I know where they are. I know I'm supposed to be hitting them. Everybody who's using this console knows where they are, what's included in them, et cetera. Same could go for uh, those DCAs and VCAs. Are we going to use them? Yes, we all agree. This is how it's going to be set up. And this is a place to check. Uh, so then you always know. It's one of like the stressful things about going and you working on somebody else's file, like show file, uh, or going into a different house of worship to help them mix is I have to quickly understand Whoever set this up last, I have to understand how they wanted to use it and then have to make a decision. If, am I going to make my own adjustments or just work inside of their own, what they're doing? Um, so have as few variables as possible. If you want to use mute groups plus DCAs plus subgroups, God help us all. Uh, sometimes you need them, <laughs> but that is a lot of play. That's literally three additional places on top of the input mute end level and the like bus or output mute uh, end level that could something could be hiding in. So now suddenly you've got like five, you have five mutes and levels you need to check, which is a lot when something is happening or you've missed a cue and you don't know why it's not coming up. Checking those five variables could take, and this like sounds silly, but it's like could take 10 or 20 seconds, which is an eternity <laughs> in live events. So yes, it is. always understand your workflow. I think the last thing I would add on prevention is making sure that you have a solid base scene that everyone is working from. Mm. If you have a digital console, you absolutely need to have one starting place for everybody. This eliminates a lot of the variables in that somebody went through methodically and made sure that all of that stuff was right at some point in time. And, um, that way, if anybody gets creative or says, well, I want to unassign this from the main bus and run it through the effects rack to use this plugin that's on there, and then it's coming back through here so that I can do it that way, uh, that, that can be undone very quickly and hmm. be like, well, you know, like we know this base scene works. Let's just load that and see if we can get it working again. Mm -hmm. That can recall a bunch of settings all at once. Uh, to make life simpler. And then you also should probably have a second scene for like, if somebody's using your sound system for like, you know, a, a meeting for like, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, let's say you know, they're coming in a meeting in your space. They just need two, you know, handheld microphones mm -hmm. and music playback from the computer. Great. We can have a scene where if they just load that, those are up and ready to go and they know how to do that. But having a base scene for, you know, your regular worship team and a base scene for guests coming in. Those can save you a whole lot of hassle and headache. 
because then you just have to do all the troubleshooting stuff one time. You get it working once, then it's good to go. Mm-hmm. Love that. Yep. And 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 make sure that you copy that base scene yep. on like scene 99 or something. Yes. So that if somebody saves over the base scene by accident or on purpose or puts their creative touch on it, <laughs> uh, you know, then you can go back and be like, no, no we got to back up and back up another version on a thumb drive and put it on Google Drive or Dropbox or something so it's in the cloud. It's really not anywhere until it's in two or three places. Mm, so true. Amen. <laughs> if you find this podcast helpful and want to help us reach more Church Sound Techs, would you take a moment and rate, leave a review on this podcast wherever you might be listening? Just a couple of minutes goes a long way to help us reach even more Church Sound Techs. Church Sound Podcast is part of the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network. I'm Samantha Potter. And I'm James Attaway. Thanks for tuning in and have an amazing service this week.